and welcome to the official Necromancers of the Northwest podcast. If you're a reader on our website, you'll know that today is the last day of our celebration of the sword, arguably the most iconic fantasy weapon of all time. As a result, we've decided to spend today largely talking about swords. We'll get into that a bit more in a minute, but first, we're going to do our weekly review. Yes, so the book is called 101 Weapon Properties, and that's basically what you get uh, from this Wright publishing product. Uh, so following the cover, which has some rather nice art on it, uh, you get a brief credits page where the book's contributors are calling themselves stuff like smiths and uh, metal workers. And then you get immediately launched into a price table where it has all the items in the book sorted alphabetically and then by, by price, naturally. Uh, and then it just moves straight into the weapon properties, lacking an introduction or table of contents section. The book is bookmarked, so you'll be able to find your way around uh, alphabetically, and by consulting the table in the beginning, you should be able to find whatever item you want relatively quickly. Um, since it's only an hour-long podcast, I really can't review all 101 items individually, uh, so let me just give you the highlights. Right away, we get introduced to the afflicting weapon, which uh, inflicts a specific mental affliction named at the item's creation unless they succeed on a saving throw. Nothing too unusual here, except that it introduces an important point that the book makes. You see, the saving throw uh, for the effect is based on the standard formula of 10 plus half the user's hit dice plus his strength or dexterity modifier, as are all the saving throws in the book. Uh, sidebar goes on to explain that one of the major problems with magic items uh, is that they have set DCs for saving throws they might want to use. This limits what stage of play they're useful at, and it really restricts the use of the item. In a lot of cases, the saving throw for items ends up being way too low for the amount of price it actually costs to be useful at that stage in the game. And doing something like this really works around that. Uh, so it's good that they did this, uh, but in, in terms of execution, I think that using 10 plus half your level plus your strength or dexterity, depending on whether the weapon is melee or ranged, uh, was a bit safe, and it's... a it's a bit boring and the flavor doesn't fairly well connect to me that the weapon that's magically on its own powerful is going to have its power very widely from user to user it doesn't connect as well with the sort of magic weapons you get in folklore where the properties are are inherent to the uh, to the device and not to the user uh, so it it's I, I think it was a good effort but I, I don't think it was the uh, necessarily the best way to go about it uh, so moving on to some other uh, worthwhile or abilities worth noting, uh, right after that they tell you about the ambush ability. It's a plus one equivalent ability that adds a one die six bonus to your sneak attack damage. At first I thought that was great, uh, you know, not bad, reasonably well done. And then I took a moment to think about it and I realized that actually no, it's not very good because uh, for a plus one enhancement bonus you could get plus one die six fire damage or frost damage or ice damage all the time. Uh, including to your sneak attacks. And uh, while you could make the point that, well, yeah, sure, but some creatures are resistant to fire, uh, you know, some creatures are resistant to sneak attack damage too, and the fact that you're going to be getting around damage reduction and things like that with the, uh, with the energy damage just continues to, to show that it, that is a superior ability. So, so really, uh, Ambush is kind of a uh, lackluster ability. I might have uh, wanted to see it as a standard cost, something they do quite frequently throughout the book. Uh, moving on, uh, the next item I wanted to talk about is Fiend Fang. Uh, as I read through the book, I noticed that the power level of some of these abilities are out of sync with one another, 
and they they fluctuate quite a bit uh, in a lot of places. And nowhere was this more evident than with the Fiend Fang ability, uh, which when drawn, uh, what it does is it allows you to choose from an energy type of Acid, Fire, Sonic, uh, Frost, you know, light, Shocking, the, the usual five. Uh, and then the weapon will do two dice six points of damage until you sheath it again of that energy type. You also get to pick, at the same time, an ability score, which the weapon now damages for one point if the target fails a saving throw when they get hit. Remember the standard formula. And it grants you the use of the uh, poison spell on hit with the same saving throw DC based on your uh, based on your hit dice, your strength and dexterity modifier, which I would like to point out is most likely going to be higher than the saving throw DC for the actual spell uh, as soon as you hit about 10th level or so. It's going to exceed that by, by 2, presuming your strength or dexterity is roughly equivalent to the associated mental ability score. Um, and you, you know, then that's a lot right there. But wait, you still get more. Uh, there's some. Uh, there's a couple of less impactful riders, uh, including a plus ten bonus to diplomatize evil outsiders, and a uh, the fact that you overcome over evil damage reduction. Uh, you get the ability to overcome damage reduction over evil. And finally, the uh, the the weapon is inherently evil, but there's no no uh, actual straight mechanical effect for that. There's no uh, no aura mentioned or anything like that. Uh, to me, this seemed like you get an awful lot for a plus three uh, enhancement bonus equivalent. Uh, quite quite a lot indeed. Um, on the opposite end of the spectrum, we get a good fortune pro uh, property, uh, which costs a, a set eight thousand GP, uh, which is which is nice. It's pretty reasonable, and grants access to a number of plus one luck bonuses, which are stored within the item. Now, the way they worded this was a little bit confusing. When they create the item, it comes with 20 luck bonuses that you can use to enhance any d20 roll you make, you know, whenever you want. Uh, and then they also go on to say, and th this is the thing that perhaps bothered me the most about the item, is that when all 20 charges are expended, the, the item is not destroyed, which didn't surprise me. Uh, but then the, the item can be recharged. Unfortunately, they don't tell you how you recharge the item. Uh, do you need to spend another 8,000 GP? Can you recharge it like a staff? Uh, How does it work? They don't mention it all, and that, that bothers me. They also don't use a uh, term like charges that they actually say it has 20 luck bonuses stored in, which I, which I thought was kind of sketchy. Uh, but then I realized the question I should be asking myself is, is why would I want this item in the first place? Uh, again, the power level of something like that is quite low. Uh, and if you do need to spend 8,000 GP to recharge it, and you need to do so more than once, you're almost certainly going to be better off buying a Luck Stone, where you're going to get those bonuses all the time and the additional benefit of being able to uh, save one of your more precious items. Uh, next on the, uh, on the list of things I wanted to talk about is the Friend special ability. I was really excited about this when I saw it on the table, uh, because it adjusts the price of the item a bit on a percentage basis. Uh, then, when I got to the ability, I was crushingly disappointed. When I found out that it was just the rules for discounting magic items by restricting usage uh, to skills or race or class, reprinted as an ability. I would have felt deceived and angry that they had done this as just an ability, uh, but uh, except that they had another handy little sidebar right there that said that uh, right out that this is exactly what it was for, for people who didn't know. Uh, and uh, annoyingly, the sideboard didn't explain why they felt they needed to make this an ability. Uh, I guess it does serve the uh, the point of highlighting that, hey, here's something you can do, and it gives you a sort of nice 
you know, go-to area for if you wanted to name all your items stuff like plus one, elf friend, golem bane, flaming longsword. Uh, it gives you a nice little extra word you can throw in there. But but apart from that, I found that that was just kind of a pointless include. So re- given that that's not really an item ability, the book should probably have been called 100 item abilities. Um, finally, uh, we're going to get to the book's plus 5 equivalent ability. Not abilities, uh, just ability. For all 101, you get less than 1% of plus 5 abilities. Uh, the one you do get, uh, then you might expect to be quite a doozy. It's called Perilous, cool name, and allows you to get a larger critical modifier on a critical hit. How it works is when you roll, uh, when you confirm your hit, you roll to confirm again at a minus five bonus, which if successful increases the uh, the modifier, say from times three to times four, and you repeat the process until you miss. Uh, unfortunately, for my part, they already have a plus five equivalent ability that relies heavily on uh, critical hits that's designed to kill the guy outright when you critical under a very set circumstances. It's called Vorpal. Um, this, uh, th- this does function differently, and it's going to be more reliable, and it's going to work great for guys who are really you know, pimping out their two kukris or whatever and really want to get the extra damage on there. Uh, and it, it does have nice synergy with an ability in the book that, uh, that increases, does an extra die six weapon damage, and then that's multiplied by the critical function, unlike all the extra damage dice you might see elsewhere. But but apart from that, it's it's not very exciting of an ability. Uh, it just didn't seem like, like a plus five equivalent ability to me. I mean, in terms of mechanical power, it certainly is, but it just doesn't have that kind of grasps you excitement that you get from something like, say, Vorpal, uh, where you hack their head off instantly. That's cool. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, uh, now from the review, you might be getting the impression that this book contains a lot of boring, uh, somewhat hastily finished, pointless, or unbalanced abilities. Uh, And you'd be right. Uh, Looking through the thing, I wasn't ever really moved to want to use anything in the product, uh, and to me that makes it a failure. If the best thing that your item book is doing for you is making you you think, hey, here's some good stuff I might want to make, uh, then I, I wouldn't purchase the product i i don't pay for uh for uh, ideas for i have to do the work myself um so up next we're going to be talking about the uh one of our own sword products in our design recap from the uh ebon vault swords of legend all right thanks uh, i did also just want to just want to mention I, I noticed that uh that it didn't come up there the uh, the price for this in particular book it looks like I, I pulled that up on my laptop while I was talking I pulled up it looks like it's uh, currently available as a PDF on Drive Through RPG for four dollars and forty nine cents uh, down from five ninety nine so um, it didn't sound like a positive review but at least now you uh, you know how much you would be paying for that um, speaking of which and uh, not not to create a conflict of interest or anything but Let's talk a little bit about the design behind the Ebon Vault, Swords of Legend, because it is, after all, Sword Week, and this uh, this podcast is very largely about talking about design and taking the place of, uh, of such articles as Dark Designs, which is where we would talk about this sort of thing. So, uh, we had a couple of major overarching goals when we were making the Ebon Vault, Swords of Legend, uh, one of which was that we wanted to ensure that the the cool factor of of magic weapons 
was something that was available to players as early as possible and continued to, to have the same sort of glamour and fun all the way up into the, the very late levels of the game as well. And so there were a number of, of steps we took to do that because, again, as I've, as I've said in the past before, and I, I think we mentioned in the book, uh, in the foreword, um, you know, magic, magic weapons are one of the things that really make the game fun. Uh, it's really exciting to have a magic weapon. It, it's not only is it exciting because it lets you do something cool. It's also, you know, a, a cool magic weapon is something that you can invest a little bit of yourself into, and something that you can, you know, you you feel cool just by by having it. Uh, and so, a certain amount of that customizability and and that sort of stuff is something else that we wanted to get. And so, the book, when we were doing it, we 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 tried to approach that in a couple of ways. For one, for the very very low levels, we included the um, the mundane weapon enhancements, which are sort of like magical enhancements in that they modify the way the weapon works and they grant it, you know, you, they grant you bonuses or whatever for using it in various different ways, like plus one to damage or, or something like that. Uh, but they're purely mundane and they're designed to, they're, they're represented in that way. So there's like, there's like special hilts and, and different blade configurations and, and that sort of thing. Um, but they're, they're really, um, they're there to make it so that you can say, hey, this isn't a long sword. This is a uh, uh, double-bladed, I guess not double-bladed, but uh, one-sided, uh, razor-edged, uh, you know, with a basket hilt long sword uh, and, and really make it something you can, you can say something about. Now, even though these, uh, these low-level, you know, sort of effects, like the mundane item enhancements particularly, uh, and a few of the, uh, the actual item properties we'll be getting to in a bit uh are are designed to let lower level players enjoy the uh the fun and thrill of having something uh something unique and uh and you can't see the quotation marks but you know magical so it's something that that feels above and beyond you know something that they could have just purchased from uh from a you know the the equivalent of the internet and but importantly for for players later on effects like having a serrated edge or a uh, or a or a funky basket hilt or a concave grip really sort of let you customize the flavor of your weapon, uh, which is a great thing for, for people who care about making sure that their character is as distinctive as possible. So that they do actually maintain value throughout the entire game, uh, which, which was another important factor in those kinds of things. I, I do feel I should point out that while that is true of just about all of the mundane weapon enhancements, uh, specifically serrated, um, which, which is the one that grants an enhancement bonus to damage. It's sort of like the um, the uh, uh, flip side of um, of masterwork. Uh, like masterwork does does not stack with an enhancement bonus. So in that in particular case, that won't be true. There there is actually in in retrospect, uh, serrated uh, may have been a uh, slightly overpowered ability, as uh, I believe between uh, a masterwork serrated weapon will, for all intents and purposes that do not involve damage reduction, function as a plus one weapon for about 450 GP, which you may you may note is a little bit cheaper than the 2,300 <laughs> GP you would generally need in order to get that. Um, you know, it, it does have some limitations on when the damage is applied, and, and there's all of that. Ultimately, while it's powerful, for sure, I don't think it's ever going to be game-breaking. Um and players who have uh, have a long-term eye on that and are really interested in power gaming 
will probably not bother because they don't want to waste the 150 GP when it ceases to be useful later. But anyway, I, I just wanted to, to mention that. We also had, early on, and, uh, and in some cases quite cheap, uh, we had a number of special materials uh, which you could use. Uh, I did these for the, for the book, and so I just wanted to, uh, to mention that it's surprisingly hard to come up with cool and interesting uh, special materials. Uh, because you tend to fall into one of two categories. You either use actual real-life materials, like many of the ones in here, bone, gold, um, stainless steel, uh, and and then, with I guess the exception of stainless steel, but bone and gold, I'll go ahead and clue you in here in case you're not, uh, in case you're not particularly martially inclined. Um, gold and bone do not make for particularly good weapon materials. They're, uh, they're just not as good as, as steel or iron. And so, in order to make them them interesting, you wind up struggling with with cool abilities. Uh, I think tapping into the potential magic of magic weapons in both of those cases uh, worked out very well. And then in the other case, if you're not doing uh, mundane items, then you're doing you or mundane materials, then you're doing they they all seem to come out as you know celestial steel or devil's iron, uh, <laughs> and that's you know. That's fine, but in this, I think we did a we did a fairly good job of, of getting into other things, and I just wanted to mention as a uh, as a tip to other people who may be listening for the same sorts of design information that you got from uh, from Dark Designs from time to time, when I could be bothered to focus, um, <laughs> that uh, that that is something that's surprisingly hard to do. Um, obviously, a major part of the book is the special abilities, the the magical properties that you can apply to the weapons. Um, there was definitely a, a goal here, uh, like I said, to sort of spread out the uh, the powers among the different things. Uh, Josh was complaining earlier about how there was only one uh, plus five equivalent item in that book. Uh, we actually specifically went out of our way to make sure that there were roughly equal amounts uh, in, in three different categories. It was like, like plus one or lower, and then two and three, and then four and five. And there, if you look, you'll find that there's roughly the same amount of each of those groups in there. And the reason for that is because, on the one hand, uh, very few players ultimately will probably ever buy a plus five equivalent weapon property. Uh, it's a huge investment that you have to make all at once, and you're not even going to have a chance to do so until relatively late levels. On the other hand, which which makes first and or plus one and plus two much more, you know, uh, useful for the variety for the you know everyday life on the other hand uh plus four and plus five and even plus three uh weapon equivalent abilities are sorely lacking uh there's there's really if you go look in the the pathfinder core rulebook you're gonna find like like five i think total between that's plus three and up i'm not even sure you're gonna get that many you've got what speed brilliant energy, brilliant energy vorpal and dancing is there anything else um I don't. I don't think you're gonna get. I don't think you're gonna get five. Uh, there, there might be a fifth one, but anyway. Um, so we we wanted to make sure that there was a little bit more at the top too, and things for people to aspire to as far as really magic weapons. And I think we we got a good range there. Uh, there were some some cool things uh, in there to talk about. One of the things we wanted to make sure that we did was was make this. This was obviously a sword book, uh, and so we wanted to make sure that the weapon special abilities tried to stay. A little more sword-like, which is a little harder to do in some cases because, as you may be aware, uh, a flaming, for example, is something that can be applied to any weapon, 
Um, and so a, a lot of the abilities tend to be like that. And when they do have restrictions, it generally has to do more with ranged or melee, or it has to do with the damage type. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have something to do with the type of weapon. Uh, one of the ways that we did that, uh, there's, a, there's a number of special abilities that have to do with, with when you unsheath them, which is something that felt particularly sword-like, because, uh, you know, a lot of weapons that aren't swords tend not to be sheathed. Uh, and and it's just a really cool. I didn't do them, and I, I don't think it, I don't think you did either, right, Josh? It was it was Justin. Yeah, it was all Joss on the uh, on the uh, unsheathing stuff. But it was I think a masterstroke on his part to sort of capture one of the things that's iconic about swords, uh, and you really just help sell the idea that yes, this is a book about swords, and we're focusing as much as we can our our properties on swords. Of course, we have, we have a lot of stuff, too, uh, throughout the book, really, that, that can be applied to what we call bladed weapons, which admittedly can be expanded to include stuff like axes and things. But, but again, it's designed to, to gear you towards the sword and away from... So all weapon properties are, are the same for every kind of weapon, uh, you know, everywhere. So One of the, uh, one of the things that was sword-specific that I had a little more to do with... Uh, was flame blade and its its friends uh, I think lightning blade and force blade yeah. um, which uh, which were cool in that they actually replace the physical blade of the weapon with a um, with, with like pure fire or pure pure lightning as the case may be um, obviously you know there's there's flaming swords but there weren't really that there wasn't really that much in the way of swords made of fire and I've always found those to be particularly cool um, there was some concern when we were doing those that uh, that they were going to be a little bit um, a little bit overpowered at their uh, at their price range. They're designed to go at the relatively low end, uh, and I think they they wound up with flat. Yeah, for, force blades a little bit different, but uh, they're designed to go at the relatively low low end. Flame blade and, and lightning blade are at uh, two thousand a piece, or no, flame flame blade is cheaper. Um, Mostly because more creatures are resistant to fire than to lightning. But, um, you know, bear in mind that, that when you do that, while you do bypass damage reduction, you, uh, you are now vulnerable uh, in those cases to, um, to energy resistance. And on top of that, you do have the potentially upsetting loss of the ability to use any kind of, of web, you know, material for your weapon, uh, which will occasionally come up. Um, did you have any, uh, anything, any special abilities you want to talk about, Josh? Well, yes, there are actually a couple that, uh, that really appeal to me. Unfortunately, neither of them are, uh, actually sword-specific, but, uh, but the two I'm most keen to talk about, uh, do come in at the high end of the, uh, those plus-five ranges, uh, and I, I think we should, uh, talk about a little bit about them. Uh, my favorite ability, uh, which, which I designed from the book is probably, uh, probably Masterful, which is uh, an incredibly simple ability. It's a plus five equivalent ability that adds plus five enhancement bonus to your weapon. Uh, the the idea here is that it, it's really lame. I, I've always thought that you can't have a weapon that's all enhancement bonus. If you wanted one, at least you you can't until you've uh, you've busted into a non-existent epic level handbook to uh, to look to that sort of thing. It it also does serve the dual purpose of giving you a weapon that can theoretically overcome that epic level damage reduction that. Uh, the number of creatures have managed to retain, despite the, uh, the the lack of support for actually overcoming that. Uh, 
And I just thought it was kind of a fun, fanciful way to, to end up with some crazy number combinations. And uh, I'm, gl- I'm glad we got that in there. The, the other plus five ability, which, which I think is quite important, is, uh, is overwhelming, which, is a, uh, which adds a huge chunk, 10, in fact, to, uh, to the DC of any special abilities your weapon might already possess. For example, if you, uh, if you did shell out the, uh, the GP for a disrupting weapon so that you could slaughter your undead, and then you found out that the DC-14 save was, uh, was not really uh, in keeping with that. Uh, th- this sort of lets you shell out more so that your, uh, your, your weapon is actually effective, uh, particularly at the later levels when that comes in. So while it, uh, it doesn't do as good as some of the scaling DCs on a lot of these properties we, we do have, uh, mostly based on enhancement bonus, uh, this is kind of an exciting thing we did. Uh, but with a uh, with with an overwhelming weapon, the the idea is that you can take any existing static property and still maintain its relevance uh, later in the uh, later in the game. Uh, yeah, as far as uh, as far as other properties go, I mean, there's there's a large number of ones that do use a uh, a scaling product with uh, with a DC that is got a set space and then is further based on the. Uh, the enhancement bonus, and one of the things we uh, we were doing was uh, trying to make that enhan- enhancement bonus more important, so that you didn't just end up with weapons that were all properties all the time. Because uh, w- while those can be fun, sometimes they're a bit clunky. And then um, before we before we move on, uh, I at least have one. Uh, the, the book has a number of individual weapons that uh, like special. Uh, special in, in addition to the special abilities it's got one that it's got a handful that are just uh they've got a, a background a, a picture uh, not a picture but a uh, a physical description uh and then they have unique special abilities that can be you know theoretically grafted onto other weapons or improved upon but are generally designed to be the weapon as it is um i think all of them are pretty cool but one that i wanted to talk about because it, it got a little bit of attention from from critics at some point uh was the decimator which is one that um, uh, whenever you hit somebody with it, it reduces, it, it deals damage equal to one-tenth of their maximum hit points rounded down. Uh, no matter no matter what, you can't can't enhance that. If you're sneak attacking, doesn't matter. If it's a uh, flaming vorpal, uh, flaming vorpal, frost shock, vicious, doesn't matter. Uh, it's going to be exactly, exactly 10% rounded down. Um, there were some complaints that this may be a little bit powerful at at the price that it's at, uh, which is I think just shy of a hundred thousand GP. Um, it's it's pretty expensive. It's it's a plus two weapon, and that plus two only goes to the the hitting. Obviously, it doesn't go to the uh, the damage, so it's pretty pricey for all of that. Um, and then ultimately, really, uh, if you if you think about it, there's not that many creatures that you're gonna be hitting ten times in a row with your sword uh when you're spending that much money i, I apologize i'm gonna I'm, I'm looking at the price here it looks like it's a little bit cheaper than i thought it was it's 68,320 gp which means that the uh the price of the actual decimator ability is clocking in at 60,000 um so anyway um when you're at that level where you have 70,000 gp to drop on a weapon and uh and you're hitting something with it 10 times it should probably be pretty close to dead after the 10th time in any case. Um, and I just wanted to mention that. I want to check before we go on. Josh, did you have any specific weapons you wanted to talk about? 
You know, not uh, not not specifically. I see we're kind of running uh, down on the time for the segment. I did want to uh, want to spend just a uh, just a brief second talking about uh, you know that that we did spend a lot of uh, personal effort and a, a lot of time to uh, to add these backgrounds to weapons because you know we feel that a magic weapon, particularly a magic sword, needs to be more than just a uh, just a little item block and uh, and having something like that there. Uh, even it, even if you know it doesn't match the flavor of your particular setting, which it won't necessarily all the time, uh, I think definitely gives these weapons a lot of form. And I, I really hope that uh, that if anyone were to take away anything from the book, it would be that uh, that by spending just a little bit more effort on improving the uh, the background elements and the physical descriptions and all the little details about their weapons, they can get so much more mileage out of a uh, out of a cool tool like that than you do with. Here's a couple of interesting mechanical effects. And at the risk of tainting that uh, beautiful sentiment with crass mercantilism, I can't help but mention, <laughs> since they do, uh, I, I assure you, unintentionally line up quite that way, uh, our book, The Ebon Vault, Swords of Legend, uh, consisting of 41 pages, is available for two ninety nine. Yeah. 249 $249? I should know that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> And the book that Josh reviewed, 101 Magical Weapon Properties, as I said, is available for 4.49 and appears to be 23 pages long. So, just just throwing that out there. Um, other reviews, obviously, of uh, of our products may or may not uh, be as kind as our own thoughts on it, and may in fact uh, be uh, think think more highly of 101 Weapon Properties. I just wanted to throw it out there. In any case. Uh, we're going to go ahead and move on to our segment called Best Beasts, and I'm going to tra- stop trying to sell you on things, uh, except perhaps the warg, which is today's uh, best beast in question. Is the warg cool? Let's find out. So, on the surface, wargs appear to be little more than wolves with black fur and red eyes. But, if you take the time to look beyond that, you'll find an interesting monster there. For one thing, wargs are intelligent. So intelligent, in fact, that they can speak. Not the same way that your dog speaks, mind. Real, honest-to-goodness talking. In fact... There's a good chance that they can speak better than you can, because they not only speak common, but also goblin. They hunt in packs, and their ability to speak with one another only furthers their tactical ability, making them far more dangerous hunters than normal wolves. Plus, the fact that they're decidedly evil means that if they manage to catch you, you can be sure that things will go far worse for you than if a wolf gets its jaws on you. Wolves are already pretty scary, if we're honest. There's a deep-seated, primal fear of wolves embedded in the human psyche, and while the wolves at the zoo may not do much to inspire fear, being chased through the forest at night by a pack of wolves that are hunting you like prey, hearing their howls getting closer and seeing their eyes glowing red in the darkness, the only thing that can make that more frightening is the knowledge that these wolves are intelligent, sadistic, and evil, and that they are laughing at your fear, drinking it in, and enjoying it. Besides, wargs have a pedigree. They're featured in The Lord of the Rings, albeit as somewhat of a bit part, but still, everyone knows that anything from The Lord of the Rings gets grandfathered into fantasy and is considered cool. Period. With the possible exception of giant, kindly eagles. Right. Unfortunately, that's all a load of drivel. Uh, the, fa- the fact is that in The Lord of the Rings, wargs serve as mounts for goblins, and anything that lets a goblin ride on it is decidedly uncool. I'm not sure I need to go on about why the warg is uncool, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, yeah, they're, they're not any scarier than wolves, as it happens, and when one does catch you with its evil sadisticness, it's going to use its intelligent score of six to be all, uh, warg want eat flesh. Yeah, that's terrifying, that is. 
they're they're basically just wolves with a bad name uh that that want to be hellhounds and aren't um and there's just nothing that they can do to uh to to get there they're they're a sort of in-between creature that that looks okay on a foggy night but but still goes down in a hail of arrows uh to so many rangers uh and that that is just not the death of a cool creature hunted by a ranger so uh i just don't think they're very cool conclusions all right well as you uh, as you may know if you've listened to this segment before uh we generally tend to despite our uh strong and perhaps prearranged opinions uh we generally tend to come to a a more or less consensus on the subject this time though we're pretty divided honestly i more or less stand by what i say uh wolves are cool wargs have the potential if used properly to be much cooler uh and i i don't think that there's really anything else to say on the subject yeah, na- naturally, I disagree. I just don't think that there's any room for the uh, for the warg to actually be cooler than the wolf. Most of the time, you would actually want to use that functionality. You're not going to get anything out of it. But I, I will say that that wargs do make for cool mounts, particularly for a small creature. Now, that that's not really in the warg's favor so much as it is in the uh, in the goblin or halfling outrider who's riding it. So, uh, so this one is solidly in the, uh, we, we are disagreeing. So it's, I guess, going to be put in the middle somewhere. As head designer, I'm going to go ahead and cast the deciding vote that wargs are cool. <laughs> Moving on. Our next exception is, as always, optimal options, uh, where we give you a little bit of advice on pipping out your, your character for the next game. Uh, so since it's sword week, it's a good bet that we're going to be talking about swords in some way, uh, or at least some sort of martial uh, steel-ringing combat. In my in particular case, it's going to be something to do with combat maneuvers. If you're like me, you don't use combat maneuvers very much. They don't directly con- contribute to your goal of dealing lethal damage to your opponent, and unless you invest in a couple of feats, they have all kinds of drawbacks like provoking attacks of opportunity. Sometimes, though, if you give them a closer look, you'll find that they're just a little bit insane. Normally, when you have a big sword and get into a fight, it seems like a good idea to use that sword to rearrange your opponent's anatomy, and you may find yourself frustrated by his pesky sword or shield or armor as they keep getting in the way of your attempts to rend and destroy. In some cases, however, you'll find that the smart tactic is actually not to worry about your opponent and simply focus on his gear. A mundane weapon has anywhere from 2 to 20 hit points. Of course, the only ones with 20 are metal-hafted weapons, which come up roughly never, making the effective range of hit points from 2 to 10. Deal half that, 1 to 5 damage, and they gain the broken condition, imposing a minus 2 penalty on attack and damage and reducing their critical threat range to 20 and their critical hit modifier to times 2. Do all of it, and the weapon is completely useless. Even including the weapon's hardness, which will range from 5 to 10, you'll still be able to cut through any mundane weapon in quick order. And of course, if your weapon is adamantine, something that should be readily affordable by level 5, then you ignore the hardness entirely and slice through most weapons like butter. Even when they're enchanted, they only gain an additional 10 hit points per point of enhancement bonus. Red is written, this does not include special abilities like flaming or holy, but even if it did, unless your foe has much, much better equipment than an enemy of your CR should have, a dedicated Sunderer should have no difficulty cutting through just about any weapon in a single turn, likely leaving his foe wondering just what he's going to do now and completely at your mercy. Between the bonuses afforded by improved Sunder and greater Sunder, and the fact that the average character's CMD is typically less than their AC, you'll find that it's easier to Sunder weapons than it is to hit foes, too. If you know that you're going up against armed foes, it's hard to find a better strategy. There are some downsides, though. 
If your opponent has natural attacks, you can't sunder those. You might sunder their armor still, if any, but not their attacks. Luckily, you're only two, out two feet, and the cost of an adamantine weapon, really, so you'll be nearly as effective in a straight-up fight as someone who couldn't sunder their way out of a paper bag. The real downside is that by destroying your opponent's weapons, and possibly armor, shield, or other gear, you are destroying your own treasure. It's possible that you won't care that much. After all, if it's mundane, you probably won't bother to pick it up anyway, and once you reach a certain point, you'll feel the same about plus one and plus two weapons as well. Perhaps the most dangerous downside to this combat approach, however, is the possibility of arousing the ire of your DM. This is a risk you always run when you try to circumvent the normal rules of the game with an alternative system, like most combat maneuvers, in that if they are particularly effective, the DM will feel cheated. This option is a little more forgiving in that respect than, say, grappling, however, because it specifically applies only to combats where the opponent has manufactured weapons. If the DM feels like he needs a break from your shattering shenanigans, he can just throw something with teeth and claws at you for a bit. And if he really needs to throw you for a loop, he can equip his, his minions with adamantine gear, which will at least slow you down. Don't worry, though. Most DMs will still provide enough enemies with magic weapons to let you justify your expenditure of those two feats, making this a solid option for any upfront fighter with more feats than he knows what to do with. Right, and while, uh, while that's a great specialty option, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, something for the, uh, the swordsmen of the people, something for, uh, for everybody who's interested in buying a magic sword, and that's what, how much bang can you get for your buck, literally. Uh, we're going to be looking at, uh, at what the best plus one magic... Uh, magic ability for your sword is that you can get in the core rules and I am convinced that it's vicious uh, vicious gets you 2 die 6 damage in addition to uh, to whatever you would normally be doing on every hit that's twice what you get with flaming uh, and you don't have to worry about fire resistance with vicious if you are something like a dedicated sunderer by the way vicious helps a lot uh, <laughs> but it helps everybody and it enables a wide variety of playing styles for example it's good for a huge barbarian who has one big weapon and likes to smack down for the most damage it's good for the nimble vital striker and it's great for two weapon fighting most attacks possible guys because it just adds up now there is a downside to vicious unlike every other magic quality it bilks you for one die six life points every time you hit now, if you're something like a fighter or a barbarian with lots of hit points, that probably won't matter very much. Even if you're not, though, if your group contains a, uh, a regular cleric or you happen to be a paladin or you know one, the uh, Lay on Hands or uh, Channel Energy ability will be more than enough to keep you quite at a healthy fighting, uh, in healthy fighting form while you viciously hack your opponents to shreds. Moving up from, uh, from the plus one equivalent ability for... For my money, I'd say you could not get a better ability for your money than speed. At a plus three in equivalent ability, it gives you an, a full extra attack at your highest base attack bonus. This is going to, uh, if you're very strong or you're otherwise getting a lot of damage from, from elsewhere, so you're power attacking or you're a fighter and you get the benefit of all those feats and other adjustments, you're going you're to be able to do insane amounts of damage with an extra free attack at your highest base attack bonus. This gets even more out of hand if you're two-weapon fighting, uh, and it, unlike many other abilities, it remains useful throughout the game. However, if, if you're weaker or you're, you're a highly dex-based kind of guy, you're really into the two-weapon fighting, two daggers, finessing, don't have that big static bonus to damage, but you still want to get a lot of damage across, you really can't beat, for a plus-three value, getting flaming and uh, shocking and frost or pro probably really vicious and uh, frost and shocking would probably be the way to go to just rack up the extra die sixes so your one die three plus one becomes one die three plus several die six plus one 
and it, it will really just improve your killing capacity. Now, finally, let's say you have a ton of money and you're uh, you're you're looking for the uh, the most extravagant, crazy thing you could possibly get on your ten, plus ten weapon. You want to drop four hundred thousand GP on a uh, on a killing strategy. What should you get? And the the question that's going to come first to your mind is: Should I get Vorpal? It's plus five. It's the most expensive thing you can have. Uh, you've already ruled out that brilliant energy probably isn't going to be worth it, uh, even though it would be cool to have a lightsaber. So you're looking at Vorpal, and uh, and is it worth taking? And the answer is maybe. Uh, you can definitely get a lot of mileage out of Vorpal if you can afford two uh, plus nine weapons, and ideally two plus ten weapons so that you can max out the number of attacks with uh, with the feats that give you extra offhand attacks, two-weapon fighting, improved two-weapon fighting, greater two-weapon fighting, uh, and then the uh, full base attack bonus. And then if you have two plus one speed, vorpal, and then ideally vicious, again, weapons, uh, you'll have nine chances in a turn, roughly, to, uh, to kill your opponent outright. Uh, and then you, over the course of two turns, that gives you reasonably good odds of being able to decapitate anything that's decapitatable uh, and the addition of something like vicious on there is, is going to give you still good damage when you're uh, when you're attacking otherwise uh, on the other hand you might uh, you might find that you're better off just stacking up the die sixes in the uh, in the other half of that and going for a higher enhancement bonus um, so yeah next up we have an interesting segment and I'm gonna hand you over to uh, to Alex for something new yeah so I'd like to borrow a moment for a new segment to the podcast albeit one drawn from our website that's right, it's time for a Ravenous Rant. If you're one of our readers, as well as one of our listeners, you're probably aware that Ravenous Rants wasn't really an article so much as a place for us to discuss other topics not directly related to NNW issues. You're probably also aware that these issues are almost always related to Magic the Gathering, and this in particular issue is no exception. By the time you hear this podcast, it will have been six or seven weeks since Wizards of the Coast announced their third set in the Innistrad block called Avacyn Restored. For us, though, it was only about a week ago. They haven't said much about the block yet, except that it's going to be another large one along the lines of Rise of the Eldrazi. And, of course, the name and promotional art indicate a return of the titular Angel, and presumably an upset of the plane's darker tone. The reason that I bring this up is because I have a message for Wizards of the Coast. Please, stop destroying all of your planes. You don't need to end every single block by blowing up the the whole place and changing it into something completely different. It's fine from time to time, but this is getting to be an addiction. Innistrad is no longer to be dominated by vampires and werewolves, Mirrodin was transformed into new Phyrexia, Zendikar was eaten during the rise of the Eldrazi, the Shards of Alara merged in a cataclysm that formed a single plane that wasn't really like any of the original five, Lorwyn became Shadowmoor and then the two sort of merged into a plane that lost everything interesting about both, Time Spiral may or may not have destroyed Dominaria, but it certainly destroyed the meaning of the word Planeswalker, the last time a block ended with a plane in relatively the same condition it started was in Ravnica, and that was not because they weren't trying. You've done a good job cultivating intellectual property lately with your new Planeswalker characters, and that's great. But the reason, supposedly, that Magic doesn't have a plotline like the Weatherlight Saga anymore is that it's supposed to be about showing off a variety of fantastic worlds. Different people have different opinions about that. Personally, I'd prefer if Magic could maintain slightly more story than a giant cosmic tour bus, but that's neither here nor there. If Magic is about exciting planes of existence, have you considered maybe keeping one around for a little while? leaving it in the same condition as it started in. Then you could, I don't know, go back again, like you did with Mirrodin? Except, of course, that you had to do a lot of retconning to make that work, didn't you? Because at the time, at least, Mirrodin block ended when all life on the plane was either destroyed or sent back to its home plane, 
leaving the entire place a desolate wasteland. Of course, that seems to have been forgotten by the time we came back to Scars of Mirrodin. If your players know that the world is going to blow up at the end of each and every block, they're going to have trouble caring about any of those cool places that you make. They'll still play, don't get me wrong, they enjoy the game, uh, but the entire point of showing off new planes and really having a creative team is getting thrown out the window. You need a certain amount of stability in order for players to really invest in your creations. And you know, there's a lot to be said for going back to a place. It's clear that you never get, a, get around to showing off half of the cool things that you create about any single setting or block that you, you do, and you could always, you know, change the place on the second visit. Plus, there's the increased sales from all the nostalgia of revisiting an old favorite. That's not something you get if you throw your, that favorite directly into the incinerator as soon as you're done with it the first time. And I'm not saying that every block should be a revisit of an old plane either. One in three, maybe one in two, uh, even one in four or five would be an improvement at this rate. Just stop this love them and blow them up halfway through mindset, please. It's just a huge waste of potential with no real payoff. After all, these blow-up-the-world plots that span a single block suffer all the same problems as the original Weatherlight Saga. The beginning part of the story seems pretty clear, and then the middle gets a bit more muddled, and then there's, there's really no clue as to how it exactly ends, unless you read the books, and these days the books won't even tell you that. So, to recap, value your creations, and your players will as well. Stay trigger-happy much longer, and eventually your players will realize that there's no point in getting attached to any magic setting, because it won't last more than six months before it blows up. And for those of you who don't play Magic, or aren't employed by Wizards of the Coast, which I assume is most of you, uh, that general lesson can probably be applied to your time as a DM, or your time as a game designer, if you happen to be lucky enough to do that. Uh, generally speaking, if your players get the sense that they can't really safely invest in anything because it's going to blow up and go away shortly, you're going to have difficulty getting them to care about anything that you do. And now, I'd like to move on to another new segment, which is something of an experiment we're trying. So, for the next few minutes, sit back, close your eyes, relax, and enjoy the tale of John the Grinning Skull Morgan. It is said of many backwater slums and pirate-infested ports that it is the filthiest hive of scum and villainy to be found in any land. In the case of Devil's Maw, however, the claims may just be true. A tiny settlement of smugglers, pirates, and those businessmen and women jaded enough to cater to such clientele, there are no laws in this small port town, just the understanding that anyone who makes enough trouble will find a knife in his belly, a rope around his neck, or a bullet between his eyes. No ship waving the imperial flag would ever be foolish enough to try to dock here, and even if they decided to try, in some foolish attempt, to bring the law to the tiny island on which Devil's Maw rests, their large and clumsy ships would never be able to make it through the jagged, tooth-like rocks which protect the port's bay and give the place its name. But it's more than this lawless, independent attitude that gives Devil's Maw its reputation as a place of corruption, vice, and sin. No, the true source of Devil's Maw's infamy is the fact that it has become a home for a number of creatures which are rarely so brazen as to walk on civilized streets. Mixed in with the pirates, con men, thieves, and assassins are other things. Inhuman monsters, not just in spirit, but in flesh. If one is daring enough to go to the Pit, the most famous and most chaotic of the part, port's many taverns, drinking halls, and brothels, one will find the occasional knoll or ogre rubbing shoulders with more mundane human thugs. They'll find goblins and kobolds driven from other cities like vermin and turned to theft, piracy, or worse to make their way in the world. But today, like most days, there is one man in the Pit 
whose appearance causes him to stand out horrifically even amongst this crowd of cutthroats and monsters. It is not the man's dress that draws attention to him, though the torn, ragged, and faded remnants of a grand red coat might draw comment on another man. It's clearly seen better days, its color now faded to an ugly brown, its brass buttons all tarnished or missing, with unpatched holes in enough places to make it less a garment than a rag. His black tricorn cap is in even worse condition, visibly battered and beaten. The entire outfit stinks of mildew and decay, though some rumors state that that aura comes more from the man than his garments. No, the remarkable thing about the man's appearance is his skin, or more appropriately, his lack of it. For the man is no longer one of the living. He is not but bones, a walking, talking skeleton. While most of his form is covered by his coat, he makes no attempt to hide his face, an unmistakable skull, locked in the permanent grin of the dead. His bones have yellowed with age and lack of proper care, in the same way that a man too lazy to shave and groom might grow a long and ragged beard. When he sits still, as he does now, leaning against the bar and staring listlessly into nowhere, it is almost possible to mistake him for a corpse, perhaps dressed up and propped there by the proprietor as some sort of gimmick. In fact, such misunderstandings happened in the pit from time to time, when someone new came who didn't know about the man and didn't take the time to look closely. But those who saw his face knew at once that the man was not fully dead, for there could be no mistake on the subject once one saw the pale green flames which danced within his dead, empty black eye sockets. Someone was asking for experienced sailors today, John, said Lanny, the owner of the pit, and a no-nonsense woman who had long ago decided that she didn't care what people looked like on the outside. As long as they paid their dues and didn't cause trouble, they were welcome, and otherwise they'd be dealt with by her bouncers, a troll and an ogre with particularly mean tempers. John, the grinning skull Morgan, did not respond at first, but continued to stare listlessly into the mug of ale he ordered for himself each night, but never drank. Could never drink. I gave him your name, John. Told him you'd meet him and a couple of others tonight, after closing. John's face slowly rose to stare at the woman. When he finally spoke, his voice was not the raspy whisper one might have expected, nor did it boom like the door of a crypt slamming shut. It was the same voice John had had in life, warm and rough, heavy with the accent of the sea. For a moment now, it burned with a fire, intensity, and authority nearly as strong as it had, as it had, had in the past. Oh, you did, did you? Well, he'll be damn disappointed, then. I've no desire to serve as a hired hand to some tadpole of a captain who doesn't know the mast from his backside. Lanny was unimpressed by his outburst, however, her level tone taking on a slight edge of menace as she replied implacably, Your stored coin won't last forever, John, and I don't do charity. You can't just wait for a whole ship and crew to fall on your lap. Face it, if you want to be a captain again, I'm still a captain, dammit! John's fist rattled as it slammed into the bar with the inhuman strength of the grave, knocking over his drink. The pit was quiet for but a moment, before its various denizens realized that this wasn't the start of a brawl, and went on about their revelry. John and Lanny remained quiet a while longer, simply looking at each other. Finally, John let out a sigh. All right, all right, I'll listen to what he has to say, but if it's not worth my time, I'll tell him where he can stow his offer. Lanny decided to let the matter go at that, rather than press the skeleton on what precisely was the value of the time of a man who spent all day in a bar trying to forget his troubles. She even replaced his drink for him, but other than that, she left him to his thoughts, whatever they might be, and spared a moment to hope he was reconciling himself to tonight's meeting before being called back to her other concerns as a fight broke out between two hobgoblins and she went to go put out the fire, both literally and figuratively. 
Captain Bill Farthing sat hunched over the desk in his cabin, poring over his records for the fifth time, hoping that they would show something different. They didn't. He took another drink from one of the bottles of cheap whiskey he kept in his desk drawer. It dulled the anxiety and made the worries seem a bit further away, for a few hours at least. He knew that they'd be back later, but he hoped that by then he'd have his problem solved. He put his accounts away, not wanting to be reminded about all the mortgages and debt he'd amassed, or about how his creditors were looming like vultures, ready to strip him of his possessions rather than his flesh. Technically, he wasn't even the owner of his own ship anymore. The gentry belonged to the Imperial Bank of Stromdrov, at least until Bill got out of debt. And he would get out of debt, he resolved for the thousandth time that day, his fist clenching reflexively. He'd managed to finagle his way into a well-paying job, albeit a dangerous one. The gentry was a relatively small vessel, built for speed and cargo space, and it was perfect for the kinds of semi-legal transactions that Bill mostly involved himself with. Under normal circumstances, smuggling his Grafian spices or lost Parnassian relics was more, more than enough money for him to live comfortably on, but Bill had had a long string of bad gambles, and simple smuggling just wasn't going to make him the kind of money he needed at the rate he needed it. So, Bill had managed to weasel his way into being commissioned by the Imperial Governor of Stromdrov to hunt down some rumors of pirates, or perhaps sea monsters, that were disrupting the trade routes in the area. If he could do it, he'd claim enough gold as two or perhaps three week months worth of smuggling, which would be at least enough to let him keep the gentry, for now. The only problem was that Bill was a smuggler, not a warrior, and the gentry was a smuggling vessel, not outfitted for war and not crewed for it either. His men could handle swords well enough for drunk thugs, sure, but if they came up against real pirates who fought and killed for a living, or worse, monsters from the sea, they'd be so much chum. That was what had brought Bill to Devil's Maw. He needed some muscle if he was to claim his prize. The local tavern wench had told him that she'd had three good candidates, and that he could meet with them tonight after closing. He'd hoped for more, but figured that as long as they were strong and did what they were told, they'd have to do. Beggars can't be choosers, and Bill wasn't that far from being a beggar himself. He took another long drink of whiskey, and then another after that, and then a third, finishing the bottle. He brushed an arm across his face to remove the remnants of his drink, let out a sigh that was half contentment and half anxiety, and laid down to sleep until the meeting. The night wore on, and John, the grinning Skull Morgan, continued to sit in his seat and brood, staying still and silent in a way that only the dead can. He was jostled once or twice, but a quick look from his blazing green eyes convinced even the drunkest of sailors there that they'd rather pick a fight with someone else. Eventually, it was time for the pit to close, and Lanny drove her customers out of the room, either upstairs for those who had rented rooms in company, or out into the night for those who hadn't. Before long, only John and the other two men were left. The first was large enough that he might well have had some giant blood in him. Standing nearly eight feet tall, he leaned against one wall of the room, his eyes locked intensely on the door. He was bare from the waist up, revealing a number of exotic tattoo designs which covered his body in strange scarlet whorls and eldritch patterns. There was not a hair on his head, either on top or about his chin, and a massive sword was strapped to his back. The second sat at a table near the middle of the room, slowly nursing a glass of red wine. He wore plain-looking white robes, with a hood that obscured enough of his face so as to make him unrecognizable. Only the tip of the man's chin was visible, enough to show a few days' growth of light brown beard. Before long, the door opened, and another man shuffled in. He wore a badly-fitting leather jerkin on top of a slightly yellowed white tunic. His black hair was unbrushed, and a day's growth of beard showed on his face beneath the slightly bloodshot eyes. 
He gave a quick look around the room, frowning at the hooded stranger, but seeming to approve of the larger man in black, before announcing himself in a voice that was perhaps a bit less steady than he'd intended. I'm Captain William Farthing, of the Gentry. I'm looking for able-bodied men to help me do a job. Are you they? No one said anything. The tall man in back strode forward and slowly pulled out a chair next to the hooded man, taking a seat. The hooded man simply nodded slowly. John didn't move at all. All right, Bill said a bit uncertainly, sitting down with the two men. Well, in any case, I've already got a crew from a ship. I need a little protection in case we run into problems with pirates or the like. He gave a friendly grin to the two men, hoping that he wasn't giving away the fact that the likelihood of conflict was much greater than it sounded, and that it might not just be pirates they were going up against. No point in giving them reasons to drive up their prices, after all. I need men who are experienced and tough, people who can hold their own in a fight. The tall, tattooed man stared at him for a moment before speaking, his voice devoid of emotion. How long? The hooded man nodded at the question, leaning back in his chair, tenting his fingers in front of his face. Yes, how long is this job to last? Not long, Bill replied smoothly. A few days, two weeks at most. I need to be back in Stromdrov by that time. If there's time, I can drop you off here on the way back. Otherwise, you'll need to book passage from Stromdrov yourself. And what does this job pay? asked the hooded man, his blue eyes now visible beneath his hood as he leaned forward. This was not the part that Bill had been looking forward to. In such straits as he was, he could ill afford to pay them much, but he also knew he couldn't afford to do without them. A delicate balancing game. That depends on how much you're worth, he said a bit more gruffly than he'd intended. What can you do? I'm a priest, the hooded man responded simply, lifting up a large stone hammer that had been resting by his chair. In addition to fighting, I can heal the wounded or sick, and can bring us favor against our enemies. Bill looked to the other man, the one covered in tattoos. He simply looked back, not making any effort to sell his own abilities. There didn't seem much need. Bill thought for a moment, and then said, Say, I thought there were supposed to be three of you. There was a slight rattling sound as John stood up and walked over to the man. Aye, Captain, that there is. That's where we end the story for today. If you enjoy that, don't despair. We'll be continuing it in future podcasts. If not, that's fine too. Either way, it's time for us to move on to Game Mastering, where we give 10 top tips for a variety of subjects. This week, it's 10 great ways to make a plus-one weapon in a random treasure pile a bit more fun and exciting. The first tip is to make it intelligent. Obviously, if you use the mechanical rules for that, it won't just be a random plus-one item anymore, but you don't have to use those abilities. You can simply let it talk, or speak telepathically, uh, or give some other indication that it's intelligent. Perhaps it pulses, or uh, seems to draw the players in a certain direction. Number two, give it a history. If there's someone with knowledge history, let them roll to find out that it identically matches the description of the sword of so-and-so, who did this and that with it. Or... Uh, perhaps the inscription on the sword is a motto of this secret order of knights who are devoted to this cool and secret thing, and so on and so forth. Number three, let them find it in a strange way. Perhaps it's being used to bar a door. Perhaps they find it stabbed into a corpse who just so happens to be wearing the sword's hilt. Why was he killed with, an un with his own sword? Is it cursed? Or perhaps your PCs have a vision of the sword's hiding place, somewhere that they wouldn't know to look without the vision. Uh, give it a little extra mystery. It might even be found in the skull of a slain dragon or some other massive monster, uh, lending an impression that it's a particularly powerful weapon as well. 
Number four, give it a motif. Make the hilt look like snakes, or the blade be carved to resemble a gout of flame. Or the handle could look like a demon's face, making the blade into a long tongue. Something to that effect. Number five, make it out of something cool. Steel and iron are boring. Make it out of interesting materials. Give it a gold hilt or silver. Make the blade out of obsidian or bone or some other cool evocative material. You can add mechanical adjustments if you have them, uh, but you don't need to. Most of those materials are going to be worse than iron or steel, practically speaking, and you can just assume that the magic of the weapon is also compensating for the material, making it work like metal. Hell, you could even put in a paper blade. Number six, put some gems on it. Everyone likes gems, and they'll make the sword feel special. Double points if the gems glow. Number seven, for that matter, make the whole thing glow. Give it a palpable aura when held. Alternatively, instead of a visible aura, perhaps it makes the air around it cold, or maybe it smells strongly of strawberries for some reason. It could constantly issue susurrating whispers, or just give off a feeling of dread, or maybe calm or anger. Whatever you want. Some sort of feeling that it it's different and special. Number eight, engrave a cool saying on it, or give it a maker's mark, something uh, something put on it that, that indicates who made it and, and that makes it special. Number nine, give some indication that perhaps the the power of the weapon is muted in some way. Perhaps there's a, there's a sigil of binding on the weapon that seems to be suppressing its full magical power, or maybe maybe the sword has pieces missing from it, and, and there's like little chips off, and if you could find the rest or remove the seal or, or deliver the blade to its destiny, then perhaps as part of that quest the blade will become more powerful. That's something that will definitely attract your players no matter what type of player they are. At number 10, by far the most important thing you can do to make a magic weapon feel more special, by God, name it. Give it a cool name. If it's a plus one flaming blah 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 blah, it is not cool. Give it a name, make it cool. And now that we've done that, it's time to move on to Seed to Story, our final segment, where, as you may know by now, we're going to go ahead and roll a die percent here, and then check with the 100 Adventure Ideas table from the 3.0 Dungeon Master's Guide. We're going to get an Adventure Seed from there, and then we're going to spend three or four minutes talking about what we would do to expand it into a proper adventure to give you ideas, for one, and also an example of how one might go about doing that. So, without further ado... Looks like we rolled a 25. A nearby kingdom launches an invasion. That's a bit similar to the one we had last time. I think uh, I think maybe a re-roll is in order on this one. No, no. <laughs> no, no cheating. So, a nearby kingdom launches an invasion. All right. Well, last time we talked a bit about Cold War and preparing for that invasion, obviously. So, I guess this time it's uh, it's time to heat things up a little bit. Uh, the adventure we're going to have needs to be full of danger, desperation, and excitement. Uh, I think it should be have lots of burning villages and stuff like that. Really in-your-face excitement. Yeah, well, uh, one thing we could consider is obviously uh, last time we were talking, like I said, about, about Cold War stuff. Maybe this time it's more of a, more of a military campaign. The PCs could even be... Uh, a special elite squadron or something. There's lots of talk and, and some source books devoted specifically to those sorts of campaigns where you have um, you know military action going on everywhere and the PCs are, are soldiers or mercenaries for hire uh, fighting armies and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's definitely a route to take, uh, particularly if, say, this invading kingdom caught, uh, caught wh whoever was invaded, 
completely off guard. Maybe their uh, their regular armies in horrible disarray, and whatever remaining government had turned to uh, to local adventurers and heroes like the PCs. It could give them a great way to sort of start their career as uh, as adventurers, and even give them uh, ins and outs to to later more. Uh, or politically geared games when uh, things settle down, or pursue their career as uh, as super knights or whatever. Better yet, perhaps the perhaps the invasion goes off amazingly without a hitch, and uh, overnight the entire uh, the entire country is toppled and occupied. Now the PCs are effectively in enemy territory in their own homes, and they need to fight a guerrilla resistance movement to try and repel these invaders and hopefully bring peace back to the lands without seeing I don't know all of their favorite towns burned to the ground definitely a uh, sort of guerrilla resistance game has a lot of uh, has a lot of value there's a lot of great scenes that can be evoked there uh, stuff where the uh, the PCs need to hide from a greater force would really be a change for a lot of groups I imagine but uh, but they also need to make sure that they need to stay secret or they need to strike out without uh, without them knowing so that the uh, the amazingly good invasion force doesn't decide to start purging towns looking for them so they may have to do things sort of uh, sort of underhanded. It gives them a lot of good opportunity for the uh, the sort of adventurous things people like to do, and uh, and it it really sort of has a lot of value for for doing a lot of different kinds of things. Fighting a guerrilla war, you can certainly give a lot of impression for what what life under an occupation might be like, and you can go a lot of different ways with that. It could be uh, it could be very harsh sort of occupation where there's a lot of curfews installed and life is really bad or, or perhaps quite depressingly for the PCs who were former patriots uh, or, or minor nobility or some such that uh, that maybe the uh, the occupation is going well perhaps the invading forces improved lives for the common men or or what have you and they may have to face up to the uh, to the reality that the situation isn't so cut and dry it's not necessarily a black and white uh, black and white kind of deal of course if you want this in particular type of game and this in particular type of, of campaign to feel special and, and unique um, you're going to really have to drive home to the players very early on that they are heavily outnumbered and for once that may perhaps make a difference uh, as time goes on and the PCs quickly start to outstrip the uh, the enemy guardsmen uh, that may become more and more difficult and you may start having to rely on other tactics, for example, um, perhaps uh, perhaps the PCs know that if they do start hunting down guardsmen uh, in the streets, then the local imperial governor will respond by burning down the entire town, and all of the, the townsfolk that the PCs are supposedly fighting to protect will either be killed or, at the best, in the best-case scenario, driven off to be homeless refugees, uh, something that no one will, will really want to have happen to them. Yeah, uh... You know, definitely using things like that is a, is a great way to make sure that your PCs feel morally obligated. Uh, if, if your PCs are, in fact, callous people who, uh, who couldn't care less if everybody in town died so long as they can show off their big flashy muscles, it, it might actually be worth, uh, be worth pointing out that, you know, e- even though their, their mechanics might suggest that they could kill 101 uh, level one warriors that the fact of the matter is no matter how strong an individual is an entire army might just be greater and uh and putting out that uh that you know if they start to uh to move too openly and too dangerously without support that they're, they're just going to end up dead 
particularly, uh, this works well with, uh, with, with PCs who have obvious defensive weaknesses that can be exploited. Uh, but, uh, but in general, using a, a, a deterrent is better than wiping out your PCs because they didn't do what you wanted. Yeah, another thing to consider with that is, you know, we've, we've all probably been in games where uh, you walk into the king's throne room and all of a sudden you discover that he's got a hundred crossbowmen standing there uh, who have their crossbows aimed at you, and if you try to do anything... Uh, other than do exactly what the king wants, then they will fill you full of arrows, and AC be damned, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, obviously, anytime you've got armies and you want the PCs to feel on the run, if they don't play into that, then you may have difficulties, uh, and j just try to avoid situations like that whenever possible. Yeah, the, the, the key here is, is to make the, uh, make, make the threat seem, uh, seem realistic so that their actions can be fueled by a... Uh, a more natural proclivity towards uh, towards not getting whacked, and uh, and so that they uh, that they feel more organic in play, but uh, but at the same time, if you find your PCs not doing you know what you want to do in the face of this, as long as they're not uh, doing doing something that would be considered extremely disruptive to play the sort of thing that, that would normally cause people to leave. The, the best thing you could probably do is, is try to adjust the game in little ways so that it, it fits more what's going on. Uh, so, so PCs who, uh, who really don't care that the army is after them and they're, they're going to act and run off, you, you know, sort of, uh, sort of give them room to, uh, to play the hero a little bit while, uh, while, while keeping the pressure on. Uh, in maybe some uh, some exciting ways, perhaps uh, they could run from some guardsmen. They maybe try to meet them halfway, uh, and I think your players will uh, will appreciate that, and they'll come to join you in the middle. Getting back really quickly to the actual story part of the campaign, which we we seem to have gotten a bit off track of. Uh, obviously, the goal of such a campaign uh, would be to find a way to drive the. Uh, to drive the the occupiers out, uh, free any political prisoners, and if possible, if they're still alive, uh, restore the rightful rulers to place. Uh, or I suppose if your PCs have a darker bent, perhaps to take that place for themselves. Uh, there's a number of ways that you could have them go about that, and ideally this campaign would probably involve a, several such approaches uh, with uh, perhaps... Uh, growing results as time goes on, or at least growing stakes. Uh, one such thing is they could certainly spend a lot of time, especially early on, harassing the um, harassing shipping uh, as as goods and supplies are brought from the invading kingdom into the invaded kingdom in order to support the garrisons. Um, additionally, they could they could try to obviously uh, rouse more popular support and do recruiting. They could get into assassination attempts. They could try causing trouble back in home for the invading uh, country to, to make them hopefully recall their forces. Uh, the list goes on and, and on and on. Um, so there's, there's all of that. Uh, we're about out of time for today. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and move on to the very, very final thing, the poll of the week. Today's topic was obviously swords, and we've talked about them quite a bit this week. And while swords are one of the most iconic fantasy weapons, they're far from the only ones. What's your favorite weapon? Do you prefer the tried-and-true sword, or do you prefer a hero who rages with his axe or hammer? Or maybe a down-to-earth soldier type who fights with a halberd or a spear? Perhaps it's all about the Inquisitor's mace to you. Tell us about it on our forum at www.necromancers-online.com or send us an email at arigs at necromancersonline.com and jzabak at necromancersonline.com. 
Additionally, you may recall from our first podcast that we don't plan on using the DMG for our Seed to Story segment forever. We need your help, though. Write us with ideas for a Seed to Story hook, and not more than a sentence or two, that you'd like to see us try and expand on the show. Uh, We'll put the ones we like in a hat and randomly pick them. Send us ideas you think are cool or just ones you think will stump us. If it gets used, we'll send you a free copy of one of our products. Please send your ideas to rgibbons, that's R-G-I-B-B-O-N-S, at necromancers-online.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be going on vacation for the next couple of weeks, but be sure to join us afterwards for more Northwestern necromancy shenanigans. 